morning everybody. Thank you Gibson for that lovely reading, very dramatic. Well it would be a great help uh, to me if you would please keep your Bibles open at page 256, uh, 1 Kings 18, 30 through to 46 is our focus and um, I'm going to begin by asking for God's help. Heavenly Father, we thank you for bringing us together this morning. We thank you for those who have returned from holidays. We thank you for giving to us the Holy Scriptures. We thank you that the Scriptures are God-breathed, able to make us wise for salvation. And we ask that you would speak words to us this morning that are timely, needful, helpful, and wonderful. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the title of our series is The God Who Answers Prayer, and uh, we're devoting five weeks on Sunday mornings to thinking about prayer. But we're doing something rather unusual, because instead of studying one of the marvellous prayers in the New Testament, perhaps from the Apostle Paul or the Lord Jesus, we're in the Old Testament and Elijah is our teacher. Uh, Last week, we looked at the painful and I think rather sensitive subject of unanswered prayer, and we noticed that uh, appearances can be deceptive. Uh, We were witnessing the prayer meeting of 450 of the most senior clergy in Israel, all praying passionately, praying for several hours, And um, a casual onlooker might well have thought, surely these men deserve an answer to their prayers. Surely their prayers must be heard. But they weren't. And it was a great reminder, I think, that in spiritual matters, appearances can very often be deceptive. Things aren't always quite what they seem. Now this week we're looking at something that I think is equally surprising. Uh, Not large numbers of important religious people doing their devotions, but the prayer of just one man, and a man with no special theological training as far as we know. And instead of a, a marathon prayer session lasting multiple hours, he gives a short, simple prayer in verses 36 and 37, lasting less than a minute. In fact, when I uh, read out this prayer and timed myself, it took about 35 seconds. But in spite of its brevity, Elijah received an immediate answer. Now, before we look at Elijah's prayer to see what we can learn, I want to make a quick comment about how long God expects us to pray. I mean, is 35 seconds the new normal? It's a good question, isn't it? Well, of course it isn't. And you might like to look at the reverse of the blue question sheet, where I've given you a quotation from one of the best books on prayer that I think you can buy. It's Don Carson's marvellous book, A Call to Spiritual Reformation. And in addressing this question, how long should we pray for, he says this, Pray until you pray. That is Puritan advice. It does not simply mean that persistence should mark much of our praying, though admittedly that is a point the scriptures repeatedly make. Even though he was praying in line with God's promises, 
Elijah prayed for rain seven times before the first cloud appeared in the heavens. If some generations need to learn that God is not particularly impressed by long-winded prayers and is not more disposed to help us just because we are garrulous, that word means talkative, our generation needs to learn that God is not impressed by the kind of brevity that is nothing other than culpable negligence. He is not more disposed to help us because our insincerity and spiritual flightiness conspire to keep our prayers brief. Now what Don Carson is saying there is that the issue is not how long we pray for. It is the attitude that we bring to our praying. And this, of course, is where Elijah is so terribly helpful. I want us to notice three aspects of Elijah's prayer that I think are directly relevant to us this morning. I want us to notice Elijah's confidence, Elijah's actual request, the detail of it, and then Elijah's humility. His confidence, his request, his humility. So first then, his confidence. Now I think there are many reasons why Christians don't pray. Uh, Sometimes we go through prolonged spells of feeling completely unworthy. I think that is normal Christian experience. Um, Or perhaps sometimes we feel we've done something especially bad and even though we've repented, we feel somehow in our minds that God isn't going to be listening to us. And then again, in times of acute anxiety and distress, I don't know whether you've had this, but I have, um, you know, we can barely think straight. And we might not even know what to say, so we, we don't even get started. Now, that reveals a fundamental misunderstanding about why it is that God answers prayer. God does not answer our prayers because of our performance. But because we sometimes fall into the trap of thinking that he does, we need to repent of that attitude and look at Elijah's example. For a start, there is a tremendous air of confidence about everything that Elijah does in this passage. For example, in verse 30, He asks the people to gather round. Come here to me, he says. In other words, he wants everybody to have a ringside seat so they can't possibly have any doubts about what God does when he answers Elijah's prayer. And then three times, he douses the sacrifice in water. In fact, there's so much water thrown on the sacrifice that the water fills the trench. In other words, this sacrifice is completely fireproof. If this thing is going to catch fire, and Elijah is supremely confident that it will, well, there's only one possible explanation, and that is that God has done it. But what is the basis of Elijah's confidence? Well, the clue comes in the way that he addresses Almighty God at the beginning of his prayer. In verse 36, Elijah begins, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, 
and Jacob. Now that's not just a sort of clever religious formula because centuries before this, God had made certain promises to each of these men to be their God and the God of each of their descendants. He promised to watch over them in all their situations and though they might be unfaithful to him and they frequently were, God would never leave them. He would never forsake them. And time and time again, God had shown himself to be perfectly faithful. He kept all of his promises to them in every detail. So, Elijah's confidence is neither in the finesse of his prayer, nor in the merits of Israel. I mean, they had done absolutely nothing to deserve God's favour. Now, Elijah's confidence wasn't in either of those things. His confidence was in the faithfulness of God. And that, I think, teaches us a wonderfully important and comforting principle of prayer. Namely, that the power of prayer is not located at the point of departure. It's it's not in you and me and our skill with words when we pray. No, the power of prayer is located at the point of arrival, in the ear of the God who always keeps his promises. Now that has two immediate applications for us this morning. The first is, do you know God's promises? I mean, if my confidence in prayer is grounded in the fact that I can be absolutely certain that God is going to keep all his promises, well, it does make sense, doesn't it, to know what those promises are. I mean, it would be unreasonable, wouldn't it, to expect God to do things that he hasn't signed up for. My Bible at home has several pages at the back which categorise the key promises that God has made in Scripture. There are so many of them, the the experts can't actually agree how many there are. That one expert says 7,000, another says 8,000. Now, if I were to pause in the middle of the sermon and ask you to write down all of the promises of God that you're aware of, how many would there be on your list, I wonder? Would there be 100? Would there be 20? Would there be 10? Would there be any? I mean, it is an important question, isn't it? The second application follows. God wants us to pray these promises with confidence, irrespective of our circumstances and irrespective of how we might be feeling. Now, it is true that God doesn't always answer our prayers in the way that we might expect or indeed prefer. But he is always absolutely faithful to his promises, 100%. He's never broken one. I think one uh, cross-reference here will keep us warm and keep you awake. Turn quickly, please, to 1 John 5 on page 870. 1 John, chapter 5, verse 14, page 870, it's the bottom of the right-hand column. 
1 John 5, verse 14, John says, This is the confidence that we have in approaching God. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of him. Now you see, that is the confidence you and I are meant to have in our praying. Elijah knew what God had promised to do for Israel. He prayed with confidence and he received an immediate answer. So that's the first thing that Elijah can teach us this morning. Come back with me to 1 Kings. And notice secondly, please, Elijah's request. Now the the Bible, of course, uh, repeatedly teaches us that the things we pray for are a very good barometer, they're a very good indicator of our spiritual health. I mean, if we're uh, in the habit of rushing into God's presence first thing in the morning with a shopping list of our own personal needs and the needs of our family, well, we haven't really understood what prayer is actually all about. So it's very striking, I think, that in verses 36 and 37, Elijah, in his praying, is intensely concerned, not with his own affairs, but with God's. That doesn't mean, of course, that Elijah never prayed about his own personal needs. We'll discover next week just how close uh, to us he was in that particular department. But here... His prayer is a great reminder that if God has really been at work in your heart, you will have a new concern for things that are important to him. Before you were converted, these things meant absolutely nothing to you at all. But now, well, they're never very far from your mind. So notice that Elijah's main request concerns Israel's spiritual ignorance. Notice that he mentions it twice. Uh, Verse 36b, bottom of the left-hand column on page 256. Verse 36b, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, let it be known today that you are God in Israel. And then he makes it even clearer in verse 37. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, so these people will know that you, O Lord, are God. Now, friends, if we're awake, that request ought to surprise us. Because even the most casual Bible student would say that of all the nations on the earth, surely Israel would know who God was. And apparently they didn't. And uh, the author of 1 Kings makes a big point about this. So, for example, in verse 30, right at the beginning of the passage, um, we're told there that the first thing that Elijah had to do was repair the altar of the Lord, which was in ruins. And in case we didn't uh, take the hint, verse 31, the author spells it out for us. He says, look, Elijah took 12 stones 
one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob to whom the word of the Lord had come. Now do you get the point? God had given his word to Israel so they would know how to enjoy a relationship with him. But the ruined altar testified to the fact that at some point along the way they didn't actually want that relationship anymore. Somebody had come along offering them something much more up to date and they'd chosen that instead. So Elijah prays that God will bring them back. Now, someone here this morning will be thinking, well, that's very interesting, but it doesn't sound terribly relevant. I mean, here we are, Simon, dealing with all kinds of pressing problems. Uh, Poverty, crime, violence, poor education. Simon, let's deal with those things first, and once we've sorted out those problems, well, then we can start talking about calling people back to God. Can I say that assessment totally misses the point? And I'd like you please to keep a finger in 1 Kings and turn with me to Jeremiah 19 um, on page 543. There is a bit of page turning this morning, but I hope you'll see the purpose of it. Jeremiah 19, page 543, bottom left-hand column. Now, while you're turning there, let me tell you that this is a slightly different historical situation, but the problem, the underlying problem, was essentially the same one that Elijah was having to deal with. Talking again about Israel, God says, verse 4, Jeremiah 19, For they, that is Israel, have forsaken me, and made this a place of foreign gods. Now notice there, two things have happened. Negatively, they've turned away from the Lord. Positively, they've turned to foreign gods. Now that is what's happening in South Africa today. Uh, There may still be plenty of people who call themselves Christians, but isn't it true that when we get to know them, some of them, we discover that actually they turned away from the God of the Bible a very long time ago. And what they're actually worshipping, if we look at their lives carefully, is something else. Most commonly, the materialist dream, with its empty promises of comfort and sensuality and freedom from all restraint. It's a dream, isn't it, that puts man at the centre of everything, Now what on earth happens when people do that? Follow this closely. Verse 4b. They burn sacrifices to gods that neither they nor their fathers nor the kings of Judah ever knew. And they have filled this place with the blood of the innocent. They have built the high places of Baal to burn their sons in the fire as offerings to Baal something I did not command or mention, nor did it enter my mind. Now, isn't that an amazing statement? 
Almighty God says it never even entered his mind that Israel would behave in such a depraved way. Now friends, the point for us this morning is that throughout the Old Testament we find certain patterns being repeated over and over and over again and they're teaching us certain principles that are still true today. One of these principles is that if we neglect the word that God has given us, either by twisting it, as large parts of the church around the world are doing even today, or by ignoring it altogether, and we begin to worship other gods, what will follow is violence and child abuse. Notice, will you, that these are evils which lie entirely within man. God did not command them, nor did it enter his mind that we would ever stoop so low. But isn't that precisely where we are in South Africa today? Violence? Child abuse? I mean, think about what's happening in Mitchell's Plain even at the moment. And you see, what we're learning here is that we can have any amount of police and social workers and you can send the army in, but while the people of this city continue to worship other gods, we will never be able to stamp out these terrible things from our city, things which it never entered God's mind that we should do. Now, can you see how very practical this is? See, if we're going to stamp out violence and child abuse and other horrible things in Cape Town, we've got to start by going to the root of the problem, which means that we must pray Elijah's prayer, that the people will give up their foreign gods and turn back to the God of the Bible once more. Do you ever pray like that? You see, that's why what we're doing on Sunday mornings isn't a dry academic exercise, is it? We want to show people that if they're ever going to understand the root cause of all man's problems and discover the only solution that can work in the long run, they need to know what's in this book. But they don't. This book concerns the well-being of every man, woman and child in South Africa, throughout the continent. And if we care about them, Elijah's request should be our request as well. Well, come back to 1 Kings, page 256. Because we've noticed Elijah's confidence, we've considered his request. Now, thirdly, Please observe with me, Elijah's humility. Although Elijah is absolutely confident that God will answer his prayer, he's anticipating a potential problem around the corner. Because he knows that his own role in the drama has the potential to be completely misunderstood. Um, to bring it up to date, he can sort of imagine the book publishers falling over themselves for the rights to the book and other people pressing him to launch his own website 
with all kinds of ministry resources on it. Move over John Piper. You see, it could so easily become all about him, couldn't it? So in verse 37, Elijah prays that God will make it absolutely clear that he is the one who's turning the hearts of the people back, not Elijah. Elijah's only God's servant. And whatever he's done, he's only done at God's command. And the people need to recognise that. On one level, that's very practical, because if the revival in Israel is going to last more than a few days, well, the people's confidence must be in God rather than in his servant. God must have all the glory. But I wonder how often our prayers are not answered because secretly we're more concerned about our own reputation than God's reputation. How often do we ask God for something and make it absolutely explicit in our prayer that we want God to have all the glory and really mean that? See, I think in any uh, Christian enterprise there is always the temptation to want to see our ministry, our church, our message vindicated by God. There's something buzzing away in our subconscious that is saying, this is the place. Come to our church. All the right people are here. When instead, we should pray that God moves in the hearts of our friends, our family and our colleagues and that when he does, no one should be able to attribute it to a human being. It's got to be perfectly clear that God, and God alone has done it. And of course, that simply reflects the truth, doesn't it? I mean, none of us can change the heart of another human being. I hope you know that. Only God can do that. You and I can never argue anybody into the kingdom. John Blanchard is a very well-known Christian author and in one of his books he tells a story out of his own experience that I think makes the point rather well. This is what he says. Sitting in a coffee bar in North Devon some years ago, I got into a very heated discussion with two young men who produced an avalanche of atheistic and agnostic arguments. When the rocks stopped flying... I asked them a very simple question. If I could prove to you that God did exist, would you commit yourselves to him if it meant changing your lifestyles in order to meet his demands? They immediately said they would not. I replied, then your problem about the existence of God has got nothing whatever to do with science and philosophy but it has to do with the way you want to run your lives. And they both agreed. That's very helpful, isn't it? You see, it reminds us that God calls you and I to present the truth, but nothing will happen to change the human heart unless God does a miracle. So back in chapter 18, Elijah prays with complete confidence in God's covenant faithfulness. 
He prays that God will address the problem of Israel's spiritual ignorance and he is absolutely concerned that God gets all the glory. Now what happens next? Verse 38. The fire of the Lord fell, burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones and the soil and also licked up the water in the trench. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Now, by any standards, that's, of course, a very, very dramatic answer to prayer, isn't it? Fire from heaven, thousands of people turning back to the God of the Bible. And reading this story, the question that many people will ask is, well, why doesn't God answer prayer like that today? Well, I've spent a long time thinking about that. And the conclusion I've come to is this, that we actually don't need fire from heaven because God has given us a better sign. But if we're going to understand what that sign is, we first need to understand the significance of the fire from heaven in its Old Testament context. Because, you see, it didn't happen very often. God wasn't doing this every Sunday morning, was he? The first time it happened was at the very first worship service in the tabernacle. Uh, We're not going to look it up. You can read about it later. And for your notes, that's Leviticus 9 and verse 24. And then it happened again at the very first worship service in the temple at Jerusalem. So turn quickly to 2 Chronicles 7 on page 313. 2 Chronicles chapter 7, page 313, bottom left-hand column. Now the temple, of course, um, was the place, wasn't it, where God said he would meet with his people. And this passage gives us the account of the dedication of that temple. 2 Chronicles 7, verse 1. When Solomon finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices. And the glory of the Lord filled the temple. The priests could not enter the temple of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled it. When all the Israelites saw the fire coming down and the glory of the Lord above the temple, they knelt on the pavement with their faces to the ground and they worshipped and gave thanks to the Lord, saying, He is good. His love endures forever. Now, friends, on both those occasions, at the tabernacle and in the temple, the fire from heaven was God's way of saying, because of this sacrifice, we can be friends in this place. And the confirmation of that, of course, was the glory of the Lord filling the temple, or the tabernacle. Now, pay close attention. (coughs) In the New Testament... God, of course, does not meet with his people in a building, but in a person. And that's why there's a place in the Gospel of John 
where Jesus says, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. And immediately after Jesus says that, John goes on to explain that the temple (coughs) Jesus had spoken of was his body. So you see, when God raised Jesus from the dead, it was God's way of saying, because of that sacrifice, we can be friends through Jesus. So for us, the resurrection of Jesus is the sign that is far, far better, far more persuasive, far more powerful than far from heaven. We don't need anything else. Because if you surrender your life to Jesus, the resurrection is the rock-solid guarantee that you have friendship with God. Not just today and tomorrow, not just for a few years, but forever. Have you done it? And if perhaps like Israel, you wandered away, have you come back? Have you surrendered your life to Jesus all over again? If you haven't, well let the message of this great passage in 1 Kings 18 draw you back into the loving embrace of Jesus this morning. Surrender your life to him afresh. Don't put it off. If you put it off, you'll never get round to it. But if you do it, if you do it, well, every time you pray, you can know for a certainty that God will be listening. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we we thank you that you are the God who answers prayer. We confess that we've often neglected the privilege that you have given to us of being able to talk to you as Father, knowing that you hear us. Lord, make us men and women of prayer who will pray with a passion that the people of our land will turn back to you and honour you as the only true God. Answer us, Lord, answer us, so that our friends and families will know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you are turning their hearts back again. And we ask this in the name of Jesus, who you raised from the dead, and who is ruling and reigning as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Amen. Well, because of the message of that passage and the theme of our service. We've altered the order of things a little bit this morning and uh, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper now. We'll then have our intercessions afterwards so that we can echo the prayers that Elias is going to make.
uh, in light of the knowledge that we've been given by God in 1 Kings 18 this morning. But first of all, as we prepare to receive the Lord's Supper, hear the call to confession from Psalm 84, and then we'll say the confession as it appears on the screen. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favour and honour. No good thing does he withhold from those whose walk is blameless. Let's confess our sins together. Lord God, we thank you from the depths of our hearts for your wondrous grace and love to us in Christ. You are our sun and shield, and we should love to dwell in your presence more than anything else on earth. Yet we confess that we are full of sin and cannot walk uprightly. We are quick to grasp whatever blessings we can for ourselves and reluctant to trust in your perfect will. We have deceived and manipulated others to get our way. Help us to repent of these sins and make us willing to make restitution. Jesus Christ, without your perfect obedience given to us, we would have no hope at all of receiving favour from our Heavenly Father. Spirit of the living God, you indwell us and always have your way with us. Help us to find our peace and refuge in God's protection so that we stop trying so hard to protect ourselves. Thank you for the weakness that keeps us near the cross. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Hear these words of assurance from Romans 8. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things. And so we pray the prayer of humble access together as it appears on the screen. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can come to your table because Jesus died for our sins. We come in humility, trusting in Jesus and not in ourselves 
and ask that as we eat this bread and grape juice, we may be united to him and he to us. Amen. Friends, this is the joyful feast of the people of God. And people will come from the east and the west and the north and south and sit at the table in God's kingdom. And when our risen Lord was seated at table with his disciples, he took bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And then their eyes were opened and they recognised him. This is the Lord's table. And our Saviour invites those who trust in him to share the feast that he has prepared. I'm going to ask the stewards to come forward and won't you please come and take a piece of bread and grape juice, take it back to your seat and when we've all got some we can take part together.